Hi, my name is Amar. I'm a rising senior and econ student at Case Western. And my name is Zach, and I'm an incoming first-year medical student at the CUNY School of Medicine. Welcome to the MSX Podcast, a show about a broad range of topics in medicine, from education to exploring research and contemplating future directions for the field. In each episode, we speak with leaders in the field to learn more from their insight and expertise. Today, we've invited Dr. Alfred Joshua, a board-certified emergency medicine physician with experience in hospital administration. His professional goals involve creating a correctional healthcare system that redesigns medical and mental health services to continuously bring quality innovation, access, and efficiency. All right, well, thank you for joining us today. Uh, to start off, considering your background, you know, we see that for other specialties in medicine, it's pretty clear what you have to do. You know, you apply to this type of residency and you become that type of physician. But I haven't seen a clear explanation for the pathway into hospital administration. So could you just give your insight and describe what that's like? Yeah. Um, yeah. And again, I want to thank you for having me on this. Um, and so one of the things, um, hospital administration in particular, um, I think historically what has happened is you would have physicians uh, that would work, you know, 20, 30 years. And at the tail end of their career, they would go into administrative positions. Um, and that has uh, a lot of advantages, but then there are some uh, challenges with that. Some of the advantages obviously is the experience and knowing how things work and bringing that experience to that role. Um, but some of the challenges is, is coming up with different solutions sometimes um, because you've seen it and done it a certain way for so long uh, to redesign healthcare. And I think uh, when physicians engage with hospital administration and want to go into it on the earlier side, um, they bring different skill sets and different viewpoints um, that might not necessarily be thought out from before or tried um, because they're also not as experienced with some of the aspects of medicine versus a career 30-year-old physician. So um, it definitely is a, uh, a unique path, I will say, um, but it's something that I think a lot more physicians should really look at um, to not only enrich their clinical experience, but also to provide uh, a better way of doing medicine going forward. Um, because I think being a physician and clinician should be at the heart of any health system that is being built. And I think that's what I see as the key to hospital administration, building a better healthcare system for all patients. And so everyone has different viewpoints on how to get there and what that would potentially look like. But I think the unique perspective of being a clinician really gives a lot of uh, gravitas or a lot of weight um, to designing that system so that it really helps the patient. When along your journey did you realize that hospital administration was something you wanted to get into? Um, it really occurred early in, earlier in residency. Um, when I was uh, at UCSD, uh, which University of, uh, San Diego, uh, University of California, San Diego, um, one of the things I realized is a lot of the systems, the policies, procedures, and the way things were was because it was designed by individuals in administration. And so for simple problems and simple challenges, um, it was interesting, the solutions required multiple buy-ins from so many different people, but that the system was a lot more complicated. So I took the time um, to actually reach out to the local CEO of the hospital at the time, and I was fortunate that he responded back um, and basically 
engaged in a conversation with me. We scheduled a meeting and that went on for years. And from that um, conversation and dialogue, um, he presented an opportunity to me to basically do a two-year hospital administrative fellowship um, at UCSD where I would work with a lot of the healthcare executives um, and then do projects, do like Lean Six Sigma projects and other things to help the system, but really uh, an opportunity to learn how everything was. And what it was interesting to me is um, UCSD's medical center had, you know, a couple of hundred physicians and clinicians, but there was over 5,000 other employees that really supported the system. And while I was at UCSD for being a resident in emergency room for four years, um, I never saw all of the other aspects, everything from food to backup generators, to how dialysis machines work, to budgets, to risk management. I mean, there were so many different fields that had to work together to do essentially deliver the patient their care. So what I was really fascinated by that, and really I took the opportunity to learn. Um, and then I was fortunate that I, I had two mentors in that period of time. One was the president of the medical group and one was the C uh, chief medical officer of the hospital. Um, both of them actually encouraged me to also get my MBA at the same time. Uh, so that I can have that additional um, skill sets from the financial and system-based standpoint. So I ended up getting my MBA at UC Irvine at the same time as I did this two-year fellowship. So I feel I was very fortunate. And then um, through networking, I was able to get uh, my first job outside of, um, after I finished my fellowship at a local hospital called Tri-City, where I was a senior medical officer, and then uh, actually jumped from the hospital into correctional healthcare, where I was the CMO for the um, San Diego Sheriff's Department, which uh, books about 90,000 people a year and has about close to 6,000 individuals on any given day in the facility. So I, I was in charge of designing essentially the medical, the mental health and dental for that system. Finished that, did that for about five years. And then essentially uh, was the regional chief medical officer for the last few years of uh, two local hospitals in San Diego. Um, so it really, to me, the experience of um, just wanting to learn and just trying to design a better system led me to many different experiences that I would have thought even 20 years ago would never have thought I would have gone in this direction. And you mentioned that you had that business fellowship, I believe it was after your residency. You know, I was wondering that since most people that go into an MBA, they have you know, some time of business experience. Did you find that you that you were lacking certain knowledge compared to some of the other people that were in that program? And if so, was there any way that you had to overcome this lack of knowledge? Yeah, I, I mean, I would say it's very similar to coming into medical school and then taking your first anatomy class, where you might have a little bit of understanding of different parts of the body, but then when you have to get into the nitty gritty details of every part of the organ and other stuff, there's a tremendous amount of knowledge that you acquire uh, for really the first time when you're going through some of these courses. And then certain things click and uh, don't click, but um, like coming from undergrad, you might have the bio major and I, I would equate it to the same thing. Like, I feel like a majority of people have some level of, you know, financial knowledge and stuff like that, just from how they interact with their regular lives, with everything from credit cards to their own household budgets. But then you learn a level of nuance and much more detailed knowledge. 
So I feel if you keep an open mind, um, especially coming as a clinician and a, as a physician, um, we, ju you're just trained to be able to absorb a lot of knowledge in a very short period of time. So it's really about keeping your mind open and actually just taking the time to learn it, similar to when in med school. So I feel while there might be areas that you might be more comfortable with in a, like some of the MBA courses, um, there's always going to be areas that you're going to have some level of weakness or you have to show up your knowledge base, but that just requires the time to just put in to learn it. I'm going to shift gears a little here and ask what's wrong with current correctional healthcare models and what are you doing to change them? So correctional healthcare, um, and I went into correctional healthcare coming from a hospital-based background. And so what I realized was um, corrections was, you know, probably a decade behind in certain ways uh, compared to how hospitals operate and everything else like that. Even though the level of care required is much, I feel, greater because you have a captive audience that you have to provide by constitutional right, the 8th and 14th Amendment, you have to give them almost guaranteed health care for medical, dental, and mental health. And there's a myriad of problems these individuals come into. Um, many of them, about 40% have mental health issues. Many of them have neglected medical issues such as diabetes, cardiac issues, um, and then obviously work really bad dentition, substance abuse. So there's a lot of like significant problems um, that you know somebody could be arrested that you have to then deal with versus out in the community, it's really on the patient responsibility that they have to follow up and navigate a very complex system. So designing it, you have, I, I felt it was a, there's the good part is that you can design a system that really can improve the quality of care for these individuals. On the bad side, what you have to figure out is you have to go above and beyond more than what a regular person in the community would do when they design their hospital system. So uh, from that type of standpoint, the real challenge is how do you design it so that the individuals and the patients that are inside the facility actually can get coordinated care and that it wraps around to so many of the other things that they suffer from. So they might not just be suffering from diabetes, but they could also have schizophrenia and they could also be a meth addict. So when you have to put all of those things and then really bad dentition from a dental standpoint, you put all of those things together, you have to really do a lot more coordination and communication between the providers. And so I felt from the time that I've been at, you know, San Diego Sheriff's Department, and then obviously consulting with other uh, jurisdictions, one of the things I really try to emphasize is how do we coordinate the care in an efficient, timely process so that the individual gets everything, but everybody's talking with each other to know what else is going on with that patient. And regarding, you know, that type of uh, medical management, do you think there's any difference between the way prison hospitals uh, think about implementing lifestyle changes compared to, I'd say, like normal hospitals? Yeah, I, I, I do. And I, the interesting thing with that question is that I've seen it both sides. Um, and a great example, actually, is uh, food. Um, when you look at a hospital's cafeteria, some of these cafeterias are like they give out some of the most unhealthy things in a hospital situation. And yet we are basically telling the public the hospitals where you come to be, you know, get your care where you, you know, if you have trauma related stuff, you get fixed up, you have chronic diseases, you get managed, but then you see some of the most simple things as like vending machines with a lot of sugary drinks and 
candy and then you see cafeteria with a lot of fatty foods that would not be heart healthy. And yet we propagate that as like, oh, that's just how we normally eat. And it doesn't go to the continuity of the individual's overall health. Similar to that, I mean, I would even say like the in the jail or prison system, um, there's a dietitian, there's an approved diet, but there are actually ways to improve the entire population because you can give them a balanced meal. You can actually have special diets and everything else like that. And they're actually given a meal three times a day. So you have a lot more, I feel, control with some of the health outcomes that you might not necessarily have in a community hospital or in a public hospital type system that you do have with this type of uh, population. And are there any challenges maybe implementing these broad sweeping dietary changes across the, the entire facility's population? So in that situation, the usually in a jail or prison system, their basic routine, their daily routine is highly regimented. They wake up at a certain time. They basically get their meals at a certain time. They have certain activities at a certain time. They have obviously access to medical, mental health, and dental um, so they'll go to their appointments, whether inside the facility or outside the facility. Uh, but because of that regimented time where everything is always happening, like they're getting their breakfast time, they either make it or they miss the meal. Um, as a result of it, it's actually a lot more control to provide, you know, a system if you design it well to have a high quality system um, versus, again, in the community and with other individuals, they can be eating all different types of day. They can and cannot be exercising. They might not have certain activities. And there's a lot more self-motivation on the individual to be more healthy than I think on a, uh, some of the facilities where it actually many of them have come back and said that it's actually easier to be healthier while they're inside the facility than outside because there's not as much temptation to do, you know, deviate from diet or they'll be more likely to exercise because of the free time that they have there. Um, with nothing else to do. I mean, those are the things I think where it makes it sometimes easier than actually being outside. Regarding, I guess, all of the work that you have to do, I was curious as to what a typical week looks like for you, balancing uh, any clinical work that you do along with administration. So could you just describe what that looks like? Yeah, so uh, typically my week starts out with, um, I, I've made it a point to myself to at least 20 to 25% of my time that I work clinically. So I, even to this day, um, working in the emergency department, and I currently work at the VA hospital um, in their emergency departments, usually on the weekends or holidays. And that was one of the things one of my mentors said was going to be the most difficult, because as you do administration, you go into so many different other areas. Uh, the tendency to go away from pure clinical medicine uh, so, uh, sometimes gets lost. And then what ends up happening is you lose that perspective of being a clinician when you're making decisions or all of that stuff. And what I realize is even in a short period of time, medicine really changes from a clinical standpoint. So it's, it's easier actually just to spend a little bit of time, you know, every single week or in a given month to dedicate that time so that you're staying up apprised with what else is going on, but then it is that you're more connected to it when you're in, in these, all these other roles, whether it's an entrepreneurial role, you're trying to think of a product, whether it's administration, whether it's legal. I mean, there's so much that that 
just that perspective gives you that is what the reason why you're attracted in other industries as well. So um, that's typically 25%. The rest of it then goes to administration. Um, and then I do also do consulting. Um, so during the week, it's administration and then consulting, um, usually in the after hours as well. So it's a pretty packed week, but uh, um, I, I find the variety really helps me stay motivated because it's always engaging my mind in a different way. As I was doing some you know, research online too, I was seeing some of these facilities are tracking KPIs such as EBITDA. I'm wondering you know, what financial metrics are important and what outcomes do they correlate with, you know, if any, to, to patients in these facilities and what's the need to track them? Yeah, so it depends on what type of organization you're working for. So I would say if you're working in a, um, like a, a prison, jail, or government entity system, the goal there is so that you can deliver efficient care and system within the budget that you're allocated. So when I was at the San Diego Sheriff's Department, I was allocated a budget, I think, around $75 million to provide the medical and mental health and dental care for all of these inmates. Um, and close to 6,000 of them and 90,000. So you're designing your system, your contracts, everything else, so that you're able to provide the best quality service within that type of budget. And then um, reallocating it. So if you had to put more into mental health, less into medical, to make sure that you know, you're not you know, obviously cutting where you would compromise quality, but still maintain quality and reallocating resources where it's needed. When you're working for a for-profit hospital, so the last job I uh, was a regional chief medical officer, I was um, part of a for-profit company. There, the, the, the bottom line was actually very important in the sense of if you don't have profits, you can't have reinvestment into capital expenditures, you can't do other things. So their um, EBITDA, which stands for earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and, and amortization, uh, was a marker of what is the actual profit and financial health of the system. So I always look at profit in those types of situations as what is the value you're providing to your end customer, your end patient, um, because you need to define your system where not only are you getting money, and in, in, in healthcare, it's actually very complicated because unlike a traditional relationship with a customer, your relationship is really also with an insurance company and other uh, third-party payers that have all different other motivations to pay and not pay. So as a result of that, it gets a lot more nuanced because you're designing a system where not only is the patient uh, having, you have to look at it from a patient standpoint, but you have to look at it from all of these other businesses and third-party vendors that you also have to satisfy their requirements. So it becomes a lot more complicated in that aspect. And then you take, uh, you know, non-for-profits, uh, hospitals and other things like that. And again, there, the budget is also very important. And it only, um, and what you have to balance there is the amount of revenue that's coming in there that you make sure that it's close enough to where your expenses are. And so the, the non-profits are great in the sense of you can reinvest all of those profits essentially back into the hospital. Um, but the, the caveat there is you have, still have to do your due diligence and everything else to make money so that the hospital is actually thriving in a, in a very challenging environment. And going back to like the complexity of the medical system in the correctional facilities, is there a buffer period on innovation within 
you know, this type of field? Because it's already complex. Yeah, I, I feel like with innovation, with a lot of these systems, I find from my own experience is that when you truly have a problem or a challenge and there has to be a solution, that's where some of the most innovative solutions really come about. And so I think a, a good example is like whenever there is you're faced with a infectious disease of some sort and you have to try to protect the population, um, the solutions that come out of it are highly innovative, but it's based on necessity or, or born out of necessity, I feel, in many of those situations. So um, I feel the innovation is there, but it's dependent on what the challenges are for some of those systems. And I guess shifting towards personal finance advice. Uh, we didn't mention this before, but as a physician that's retired uh, relatively early in his career, what would you suggest in terms of personal finance advice for physicians that are starting out or currently uh, in the middle of their practice? So I think one of the most important things is um, to understand just basic budgeting and finance um, and just taking the time to just learn just that aspect of it, because there's a lot of physicians that I even myself encounter that will trust somebody else to do their own financial, to have their own financial knowledge or literacy. And I feel that just getting educated on just basic financial literacy on just budget, what is coming in, what is going out from a income and what is going out from an expense, those things go a long, long way because it allows you to plan going forward. And I think the other big thing caveat is especially for physicians really early is do not underestimate uh, how much student loan debt and the interest rate and how much that accumulates over time. Um, I think a lot of us and I will be guilty that of myself when you sign up for some of these student loans, you really don't take the time to understand what even a quarter of a percentage is a difference over the span of, you know, 10, 20 years or how much you're really borrowing and are you borrowing it for like really for tuition, are you borrowing it for other expenses? And is there another way to, you know, offset it, whether it's to work or to get some level of uh, other type of income? And I think that is what I, one of the biggest things I would say, because the, just even just taking out a few thousand dollars, it com interest compounds and over a period of time, you could be in a much worse debt situation in the future that you could have avoided just by taking the time to understand what you're getting yourself in into from a, um, a student loan debt standpoint. Could you share some resources that helped you along the way? Yeah, like, I mean, I think the, the beauty right now is like the internet has been really great to learn anything from. I mean, I would even say things like the Khan Academy basically show, I mean, just basic videos and lectures on that on financial literacy and uh, those types of aspects. Even just that basic of the stuff, it goes such a long way because majority of people don't even understand that, that like basic part of it. And then they go to these other professionals or specialists uh, on the financial side who may or may not have their best interests and may or may not be telling them the actual truth of their situation. So I think from my standpoint, just getting and learning about it and using resources like that actually is um, has been very beneficial even for myself. And do you have any parting uh, advice or words of wisdom for aspiring students that want to get involved with healthcare or specifically hospital administration, you know, in this day and, in this day and age? 
Yeah, I, I think the most important thing is to be able to network, to be able to present yourself and know exactly that even if you don't know exactly what your endpoint should be, that you are willing to learn and you want to get these types of experiences and really approaching the individuals in that space to understand their perspectives and potentially even do certain types of roles where you get that experience, whether it's simple projects, uh, whether, you know, it goes to the point of getting degrees or certifications, or even just even taking the time to, you know, work in certain type of environments. Um, so I think from my standpoint, it's really networking because that's how in that, in this world of administration, that's how you get your job and that's how you get your future job and uh, different roles uh, going forward. Well, thank you for speaking with us and thanks to everyone listening on this week's episode of the MSX podcast. We hope you enjoyed our episode with Dr. Joshua. Have a great rest of the day.